So uh, this sermon in our series uh, on You Asked For It came up a couple of times. I think I had three that had some form of terror uh, or terrorism or uh, Islam and uh, those types of things in it. And so I had to think about how I was going to approach this topic. And, and the sermon that I'm preaching this morning, uh, you have to understand contextually, is a sermon for our time and our place and our culture. If I was if I was preaching this sermon uh, in a different country, perhaps around the world, or if I was preaching it to a different people, then it would be a very different sermon. And so we're hearing this topic, I hope, and this message as God's word for our time and our circumstances as Christians who are living in the comparative safety of the West and understand then from that how we, as these comparatively safe Christians living in the West are to think, feel, and respond to the terrorism that's taking place around the world uh, and sometimes a little bit closer to home. And so to that end, as I approached this topic, I thought about terrorism and its effect on individual Christians and then its effect on the larger church and what the possible dangers are there as we contemplate what's happening around the world and what is happening in these events and what is the root issue when it comes to the relationship between terrorism and Christianity. How are we as Christians to respond? And, and frankly, I'm, I'm saddened, and I think, well, I know that God is saddened as well, when I see Christians afraid, when I see Christians anxious, or when I see Christians defensive, and Christians or the church becoming reactionary to the culture around them. And there is a certain sense of a rising level of fear, I think, over the last two decades in the Western church as we are increasingly exposed to circumstances here that, frankly, the church elsewhere around the world and elsewhere at other times in history have always experienced all the time, but they're brand new to us. And what we face in the West is, is a rise in terrorism that is explicitly aimed at the Christian West. When the, when the planes hit the towers in New York, there was no apology for the fact that it was an attack on the Christian West. But then combined with that, there's a, a rise in hostility towards Christian values in our own culture. There's a, a rapid loss of political and social influence taking place around us. There's an ethnic and a cultural marginalization to the point of clearly Christians being in a vastly minority status when at one time we were a majority, at least at a cultural level. And all of these things all happening over the last two or three decades combined together to create fear. And then stemming from that fear, the church, I'm afraid, sometimes reacts defensively and takes a certain stance towards our enemies as though they are somebody that we have to attack or defend against. And I personally don't want to see individual Christians living out their faith in a stance of fear or feeling that they need to be anxious and nervous about the future. And I certainly don't want to see the church react poorly to the culture that it's called to love and serve. And so what we're doing this morning is we're taking a look at this topic of terrorism and see if we can't unpack some of the root causes of this fear. Where does the fear come from? And how does the fear relate to the current realities of terrorism and, and look to Scripture as a ground for our confidence and identify a proper Christian response to the social and political climate of our times? 
And so on this topic of, of terrorism, I just wanted to, to differentiate between war versus terrorism. War is horrible. It's a, it's a terrible eventuality, but it can become inevitable when nations are in dispute. War, properly fought, is openly declared. It has a just cause at stake. It's proportional in its measures. It involves military combatants. It avoids civilian losses. It's conducted under legal conventions. And it is a last resort. And right now, in 2017, there's basically only three serious conflicts that you might call a war. There's Afghanistan still, and Iraq still, and Syria, of course. Those are wars. Terrorism targets non-combatants. Terrorism is politically motivated. It has the aim of using violence or the threat of violence to coerce social change through fear. And there are 866 attacks just in 2017 so far. Now, of those attacks, as you can expect, over 60% of them are by the Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or Boko Haram. Terrorism seems to be, right now, uh, somewhat monopolized by those groups, but they're not the only people who use terrorism, and they're not the only people, historically, who have used terrorism. But the reality of war versus terrorism is that terrorism is intended specifically to invoke fear. Terrorism is about terror, and it's about fear. And so to understand how we respond to terror, we need to also understand fear and how fear works in our culture today. And that takes a little bit of unpacking as well, if you'll just follow along. And so there's many categories that we could use to define fear, but as it relates to terrorism, I just want to consider two categories, and, and hopefully you'll help me, uh, you'll, you'll be able to see what I'm talking about here. The first fear that we have in relation to terrorism is compassion for those affected and concern about more suffering on their behalf. And then secondly, another way of categorizing fear in response to terror is personal anxiety or confusion or destabilization and uncertainty that takes place in our lives and creates uncertainty about our future. And the first sense of fear, which I think is the sense in which maybe we have feared terrorism 15 or 20 years ago for the most part, again, speaking as Christians here in the West, is a good sense of fear. In other words, when we used to see a hijacked plane on the 11 o'clock news, or we read in the newspaper that a bomb had exploded in Nigeria, we felt compassion for the people involved and we felt fear or concern for future violence to them over there and even a desire to respond and to help them out of our concern for the violence that they are oppressed by and the suffering that they're going through. But we were largely not afraid of coming to harm ourselves or that our world was going to be destabilized. That was 15 or 20 years ago, I think. That was mainly the fear of terrorism that we had. But in the last couple decades, I'm, I'm concerned that even among Christians, when we talk about our fear of terrorism, it's less in the first sense, and it's increasingly about the second sense of the word. In other words, when our phone buzzes in our pocket, and we see that a car has just run down a group of tourists in London, or we are watching the live Facebook feed of bodies being removed from a subway station bombed 10 minutes ago, when we read the daily tweets and at the click of a blog of sensationalist right-wing or new left political pundits, we are a little bit less afraid for the victims over there, and we are now increasingly more and more fearful for our own personal safety. And we are even more anxious about the destabilization of our Western society, and we are uncertain about the security of our own future and our own children's future. And so there's a different category of fear now that has infiltrated the West and I think has infiltrated even Christians, that we are fearful for ourselves, 
That we're not just concerned and have sympathy and are fearful for the violence that might take place to others, but we are uncertain of the destabilization that's taking place in our own country. How and why has fear taken on this new form, even among Christians? And I think it's important as Christians that we're wise about this as well, and that we understand that this is what is also different in the last 20 or 30 years, and is the amplification of terror through fear and the social media. And a very real problem that has to be addressed as Christians in our culture is that fear is socially infectious, and it's one of the reasons that terrorism works so well now. It works better than it's ever worked. Because the infection vector of fear is fast and pervasive. It's social media. Our phones ensure that we are constantly plugged into the media stream. We have a fire hose's worth of information coming at us 24-7 through social media. But it's all edited down to 140-word tweets or 40-second YouTube clips without any context and delivered digitally. This data lacks humanity and empathy and it offers virtually no time to think or understand or fully understand what is happening because it just keeps coming and coming and coming five, six, seven, ten times a day. And our news has become like fast food. It's delivered quickly, but it's not well prepared and it's certainly unhealthy. And so the result of these two things, this terrorism taking place in the last 20 years and social media rising so that we all have our phones on all the time, results is that the effectiveness of terrorism has been amplified greatly in these last couple decades. And this two-minute news cycle that we're on. Philosopher Elaine de Botton says, For most of history, news was so hard to gather and so expensive to deliver that its hold on our inner lives was inevitably kept in check. Because when you are bombarded by news day in and day out, it can get a grip on your inner life. But in the past, when it was at least television and the 11 o'clock news, or at least newspapers that came out the next day, its hold on our inner life was held back, naturally. But with social media, there is nothing that holds the news in check from getting hold of our inner life. It was hard to make terrorism work on the scale it does now 100 years ago or even 50 or 60 years ago. You couldn't make a billion people fear you overnight with one bomb in a faraway country. But when the news cycle goes from 24 hours to 2 to 4 minutes or actually live, then fear spreads. And also because the media is paid by counting eyeballs and click-throughs, The news has become a means to entice our thumb to tap a button to receive our dose of either outrage and wrongness of others or affirmation of the rightness of ourselves. And so our whole news media is not set up the way it was before. It used to be that the CBC or CBS or NBC or ABC News was going to be on at 11 o'clock every night regardless of whether we watched or not. But now news depends on click-throughs. It depends on whether you're finger hits the button. And so everything they write and all the headlines you see are designed to make you tap that button. That's how they get their nickel. And this fundamentally changes how news is delivered and how it's packaged and how we receive it. But social media is just the infection vector and the amplifier. Even if the news was presented as fairly and as accurately as possible, the real brokenness of war and madness would still be there. Terrorism and genocidal wars take place in the world, and that results in refugees and walls, and that results in racist reactionaries, which then results in riots and violence, 
and it results in polarized politics and even polarized families. That is the current cycle that the world finds itself in. We don't have to do anything than look at your phone today to see that that's what's going on. It's been going on for the last 5, 10, 15 years. This cycle of violence, which leads to polarization, which leads to more violence. So the question is then, is that the culture that we as Christians are meant to participate in? How are we supposed to join in the culture of presidential retweets and Facebook shares of sensationalist news stories that stoke the spirit of worry about the future? Are we meant to join in the online sparring over politics that serves only to polarize our country and widen the gap between points of view? I don't think so. I don't think the culture of fear that we see is what we're meant to participate in in the same way. So as Christians, four things. We must be confident in the placement of our hope. We must be honest about the source of our fear. And we must be wise in understanding the effect of social media. And we must be counterculturally biblical in our response to fear. And those are the four points I hope we can look at in Scripture and take away today. First of all, confident in our hope that God is in control of all things. And this is a hard one. This is a heavy one to kind of get as one point in the middle of a sermon. It could be a whole series. Amos 3, 6. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? As Christians, we have to be really honest and understand that this is the reality of God's sovereignty. As believers, our confidence is that God is in control of all things and uses all things to his purpose. If there was an influence outside of God's control or outside of God's will or outside of God's purpose, then by definition, he would not be God. So that means that everything that happens is within his will and within his purpose and within his control. It means we have to reconcile the plain statements of Scripture that God is sovereign, he is king, he's in control of everything in his creation, including what we as Christians rightly view as disaster or suffering. God sees them as disaster and suffering too, but they are within his purpose. They're not beyond his control. They're not off his leash. And we often like to think about God being in control and using creation for his purpose when we look at the trees and the lakes and the stars. And God uses the beauty and design of nature to make himself known to us and to lead people to a knowledge of him. He does do that. And we are at peace with God's sovereignty when we are sitting down at our tables with a great meal in front of us on a nice summer day and we feel safe and well-fed and cared for. And at that point in time, we rarely ask, God, why in your sovereignty have you worked out my life such that I'm in these circumstances? We don't ask that question when things are good. But as Christians, we must also know that God is absolutely in control and using all things for our ultimate good and his glory, even in the fallen and cursed realities of this world. It's God who cursed the world, but he cursed it in hope, Romans 8 says. It was cursed in hope for a glorious future. God does not pretend that he isn't in control or try to distance himself from suffering. He's a big God. He can, he can take it. As hard as that is for us to comprehend, God has ordained suffering and he has actually joined us in suffering through Jesus Christ to accomplish his purposes in history and in the lives of his people. So the first thing we have to do as Christians is we have to understand who's in control over all things. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, 
we having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. And John Piper provides a helpful list that I borrowed because he wrote it so succinctly in such a nice paragraph. This all things includes the fall of sparrows, Matthew 10.29, the rolling of dice, Proverbs 16.33, the slaughter of his people, Psalm 44.11, the decisions of kings, Proverbs 21.1, the failing of speech, hearing or sight, Exodus 4.11, the sickness of children, 2 Samuel 12.15, the loss and gain of money, 1 Samuel 2.7, the suffering of saints, 1 Peter 4.19, the success of our plans, James 4.15, the persecution of Christians, Hebrews 12.4-7, the repentance of souls, 2 Timothy 2.25, the gift of faith, Philippians 1.29, the pursuit of holiness, Philippians 3.12-13, the growth of believers, Hebrews 6.3, the giving of life and the taking in death, 1 Samuel 2.6, and the crucifixion of his son, Acts 4.27-28. God is sovereign over everything. Everything is under his control. From the smallest thing to the greatest thing, good and evil, happy and sad, pagan and Christian, pain and pleasure, God governs them all for his wise and just and good purposes. Isaiah 46.10 says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will accomplish all that I please. And so God uses tragedy and suffering of this world and even allows the free will and work of Satan in this time for reasons not all of us know. But some of the purposes for suffering we do know. And I don't have time for that sermon today, but relevant to this topic, I'll mention just one purpose of maybe God using suffering as it relates to terrorism. It's to reveal the nature of sin and evil in the world. Because as Humans, we don't want to believe we're evil or that sin exists because then we'd be accountable for something. And God uses suffering and violence to demonstrate to the globe and to us as individuals that sin and evil is real. There were decades leading up to September 11, 2001, in which much of the Western world was content to argue that there was no such thing as evil. Postmodernism and relativism reigned supreme. There was no right and wrong. People were inherently good, or at best we could say different. You had your truth and I had my truth. There was no moral absolute to appeal to. There was no moral absolute by which you could judge me. But after the planes hit those towers and the subway was gassed and the trucks ran over the tourists and people were beheaded and hundreds upon hundreds of terrorist attacks that followed, suddenly newscasters and journalists were using a term that they had never used before. They said, this is evil. They never used to say that. You could never write an article in a newspaper to say something or someone was evil. And they were appealing to a moral absolute. It wasn't just their opinion that it was evil, or it wasn't just the result of an evolutionary chemical predisposition in their brains that told them it was evil. They were making the statement that this was objective evil that was taking place. And they were right. There is sin at the heart of mankind that needs a solution. And God uses suffering, even terrorism, to show us our sin. Now I have three warnings in response to that. So as Christians, how we react to that. We have to be careful where our hope is, first of all, that I've talked about. Our hope is in God. 
that we have to be careful that we're not fearful that God has somehow lost control or is making mistakes or that God has promised Christian security and a failure of our security is somehow a failure of God. Comfort and peace have not been normal since Eden. Suffering reminds everyone that evil exists and it collapses the myth that the world is getting better and better because we as a species are getting better and better. Any Protestant evangelical Christians living in much of Europe and the West from roughly 1750 until today in 2017, we have been living in a highly unique historical and geographical bubble of peace and prosperity unlike any other time. If you look back on the golden days of Christian West and the rise of the church and all the peace and prosperity and political influence and social influence that we've had as Christians for 250 years, that is an anomaly. It's an anomaly in our particular countries, in North America, and it's an anomaly in time. The church has always been persecuted. We have become the generation that does not know war, and that's part of our problem with fear. In Judges 2.10 and 3.1-2, it says that what happened was a generation came along that didn't know war. And all the generations that were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. Joshua had won all the victories. They had the promised land and Joshua's generation died out and then the next generation died out and then a bunch of kids grew up who had no idea what persecution was. They were king of the world. Israel was the top dog in the Middle East. But God left nations around Israel to teach them that you are my people and you will be persecuted. And that's our problem, I think, in the West is that we are the generation that has arisen. That hasn't known war. We haven't known persecution This idea that people hate Christians and that there are terrorists that will attack us because of who we are and our values is shocking to us. But that's the reality. But we don't put our hope in peace. We don't put our hope in the fact that we won't be persecuted. We put our hope in God. 20th century writer and Christian apologist you might know, C.S. Lewis writes, If God thinks that this state of war in the universe is a price worth paying for free will... That is, for making a live world in which creatures can do real good or harm and something of real importance can happen instead of a toy world which only moves when he pulls the strings, then we may take it that it is worth paying. I don't understand suffering. None of us are going to fully understand suffering. But what C.S. Lewis is saying here is he's saying that if God believed that war and suffering is a price worth paying for free will, for a real living world in which harm and good can be done, then we can take it as fact that suffering is a price worth paying because God has made it so and joined us in our suffering. So first of all, we have to know where our confidence lies. It lies in God. Secondly, we have to be honest about the source of our fear. We have to be careful as Christians where our fears really are. That we are not, if, that we are not really fearful of, of maybe being an ethnic minority or simply losing our privileged status and prosperity. Anxious churches wishing for the golden ages of ethnic or religious majority ultimately end up just reflecting back to culture an identical fear and worry rather than being alternative shining light, says Mark Sayers. 
And that's my concern, that a lot of us and a lot of our Christian fear is, is just fear about losing our status, fear about losing our security, fear about losing our comfort. If we're looking at the world through the lens of the gospel, then we do not wring our hands and worry with the rest of Western culture, but rather we see God's pursuing love for humanity and his victory over powers and principalities and the spread of his good news to all nations, and we shed his light into all darkness. A sort of anxiety over religious purity or majority can lead the church down a dangerous path that we have seen bubbled up in small pockets south of the border. Right? We have seen the fear bubble up. Fear over the last two decades of violence has led some to what Mark Sayers calls a dangerous dance with blood, soil, and flag. It loses itself in conspiracy theories and speculative, politicized reimaginings of Armageddon and moves into more dangerous territory in the alt-right. This is the danger of fear, especially infectious fear as it spreads through social media and Twitter and Facebook, is that our fear becomes a fear of we are somehow losing our ethnic and cultural status and that we have to react in some sort of misguided nationalism to protect a reality that has never been true. Christians will be persecuted. And it's not our job to to preserve our security. It's our job to bring salt and light to the world that is lost. Michael Knowles writes, the alt-right loves Christendom, but rejects Christianity. They love the idea that there is some sort of megalithic Christendom that somehow is a cultural juggernaut, political force in the West. But the alt-right rejects Christianity, which says we humbly sacrifice ourselves and we submit ourselves to love our enemies. And so in response to the threat of terror, we have pockets of people who would claim a cultural Christianity responding with violence of their own, and we actually have what people are calling Christian terrorists. And they're bringing a bad name on Christians and on God by their actions. They are too quick to take up arms in order to preserve an insular way of life. So we have to be crystal clear as Christians what it is really at the root of our fears. What are we really afraid of? Is our concern born out of compassion for those that are suffering and our hope that the world will see the light of the gospel and turn to Christ? Is that where our concern is? Or are we simply afraid that our way of life is threatened and that our golden age is slipping away? So first of all, know who's in control. Second of all, be very honest about what it is you're afraid of. Thirdly, be wise in understanding social media in our lives. And I've covered a lot of this already, so I'll just highlight the key realities. As believers, we have to be especially careful that we don't let the vector or the means of infection amplify our fear or anxiety. We have to be very careful consumers of all media, but especially of social media. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. That verse is no more important at any time than I think right now. When you are getting a new thought injected into your head, every Twitter click, every Facebook post, you must, we must take every thought captive to obey Christ. As Christians, don't react to every Trump tweet, okay? And don't click on every clickbait article, right? You won't believe what she told her professor. You're right, I don't care. (laughs) 
Those titles, like I said, are meant to sensationalize, to dramatize, to stoke either concern or sensation, or to simply be an echo chamber of what you already believe. This is so important. We have to be wise in understanding of the vector of infection of fear, which is social media. Just don't react. Fourthly, finally, now this is how we are to react. This is what we are to be. We are to be counterculturally, excuse me, biblical in our response to fear. A proper Christian response as Christians living in this sensationalized, social media saturated West is what Mark Sayers would call the roar of quiet living. The Apostle Paul lived under two of the most tyrannical and anti-Christian emperors of the Roman Empire, Caligula and Nero. One of them burned Christians as torches for his garden. The other engaged in a virtual non-stop orgy of debauchery and drunkenness. And they both make Trump look like a paragon of virtue. But even as the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, is describing the affliction of the apostles and the affliction on the church and the suffering and the immorality surrounding Christians, and he's describing the end times that are approaching in this letter in Thessalonians, his admonition to these Thessalonians in the midst of that culture is simply to live quietly in the midst of the chaos. 1 Thessalonians 4. 9 to 12 reads, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this and more, and to aspire, to us, this is their, this is their Christian aspiration, aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs. And to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul says, you want to send a message to people outside the faith? You want to send a message to a culture in chaos that is oppressed and violent and debauched? This is what you do. You just live quietly. The roar of quiet living in our culture. We demonstrate that we live in this world, but not of the world. We demonstrate that we are citizens of heaven, not nationalists of Canada or America. How do we testify that our hope is not in politics or in peace, but in a sovereign God? Then by living quietly amidst the chaos with confidence, showing brotherly love, working diligently and compassionately for those in need by neither allowing our own fear to be amplified or participating in the amplification of that fear or participating in the stoking of those fires. We distance ourselves from that and live peaceably. As a church, we become a city on a hill, a place of refuge. We're to be a light uncovered, shining in the darkness. And how can you talk about a light without talking about darkness? We are surrounded by darkness, but we are to be the light. How can you talk about a city without talking about community? We are living in times when terrorists and all sorts of forces are trying to tear communities apart, tear families apart, redefine everything around us. But we are to be a city which is a community, which is a place of refuge. So as Christians, our right response to a a culture of fear, our right response to the intentions that terrorists have, which is to sow terror, is to not take the bait, to not 
click the tweet, to not engage in that culture of fear. Our calling is what Paul laid out for the Thessalonians. He said, aspire to this. Just live quietly. Show brotherly love. Work with your hands. And in this way, the outsiders will see. They will see who God is and how we live. So Christians, don't be afraid. God is in control. Do not fear what the world fears, but hope in Christ. And church, let's be a community of hope, not despair. Let's be light, not darkness. Let's be truth, not lies. Let's be peace, not conflict. Let's be health, not harm. Let's be building up, not tearing down. As Christians, let's have our quiet, peaceful, compassionate living be a resounding roar in the midst of a culture of fear. And let our churches be a sanctuary of hope and confidence in a more certain answer. A God who has joined us in our suffering and a God who has everything in control to rescue us from ourselves. Let's pray. Father God, it's going to be hard for us. I'm as guilty as any. You know, i got a spare minute. My phone is in my hands. Somebody says something I don't like on Facebook, I'm itching to reply. But I just look to the fact that you're in control, that I don't have to defend, that I don't have to be anxious, that I don't have to fight, that I don't have to respond. Vengeance is yours. You'll repay And I don't have to worry about my security or my comfort because security and comfort's never been promised. Just victory in you. And God, I just pray that we as Christians can learn this lesson that Paul was teaching the Thessalonians. That despite all the chaos around them, despite the end time seeming to be right there, despite the wars and the persecution and the affliction and the insane emperors that they were living under, He said, hey, you just live quietly and you'll show outsiders where your confidence is and they'll wonder how you have hope and how you have peace when the world's fallen apart. And so, Lord, I pray pray that message gets through to our heart today, that we just abandon the culture of politics and fear and anxiety and sensationalism And instead, we choose a culture of hope and truth and peace and health and rebuilding. And we invite everyone to join us in that community as children of yours. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.